The talk tonight is about trusting our spiritual practice and about awakening wisdom. I have a a niece by marriage in Honolulu that I'm quite close to, and she uh, got pregnant this year and wanted me to be at her birth. And she's not one of these women that are sort of, you know, robust and kind of made for birthing. You know, she's quite sensitive and petite, and uh, it was a very difficult pregnancy. Uh, And she spent maybe six weeks in the hospital having to do bed rest and very difficult time. And then the last month at home, she had bed rest. So I spent a lot of time with her in the hospital. And in that process, all those months, you know, I never experienced her wobbling (laughs) or wavering. You know, she really stayed within herself, stayed with the process. And then finally I got a call in the middle of the night and went to the hospital with her. And she was lying in the bed and she hit this place of great pain. You know, as as we all know happens at some point in the labor. And she looked at me very seriously, you know, like this was the most serious thing in the world. And uh, she said, I can't do this. And her eyes, you know, then she was like looking at me like, you know, fix it. <laughs> it, was, it was so interesting, you know, these moments, you know, when you really know you can't go out <laughs> backwards, you have to go through. Uh, you know, but she tried several times, you know, she said, no, you don't understand, I can't do this. <laughs> and I said, I think you're really going to have to. I don't think there's any way out of this. You know, and I could encourage her, I could inspire her, but in a way she also had to go through that journey with her own body and mind. She had to give birth with this baby herself. So she came to that place of resisting, resisting the fear, resisting the pain. And yet, you know, when she surrendered to that, it was the most amazing process, you know, this miracle of birth. And we do the same thing on a retreat. We're giving birth to wisdom. We're awakening wisdom. The Pali word uh, for, for spiritual growth, bhavana, is birth, becoming, growing. You know, it's, it's such an amazing process, awakening wisdom inside. So we can give birth to clarity, we can give birth to composure, and we give birth to accepting. This is a poem by Jane Hirschfield from the book Given Sugar, Given Salt, and it's called A Cedary Fragrance. Even now, decades after, I wash my face with cold water not for discipline, nor memory, nor the icy awakening slap, but to practice choosing to make the unwanted wanted. Some of our practice here is doing that, choosing to make the unwanted wanted, which is another way of saying 
having a deep composure in the process of facing how life really is. It's choosing to accept how life is. So this brings up the question of what is motivating us to be here? You know, what motivates us to want to give birth to wisdom? What are we doing here? And it really comes down to a deeper question of, (laughs) we did somehow get ourselves here. We did take birth. And can we remember to shift our attitude that we're here to learn? You know, this is how we awaken wisdom, by remembering to bring this attitude over and over again that we're here to learn. And in some ways, I don't know how people live without this. It's like there's so much suffering on this planet. And to to go through this life on the planet without having some grasp that that's what we're all doing here, it's fairly crazy-making. You know, so there's not only suffering, there's great joys, but there's the, this, the thousand joys and sorrows. And how do, we, how do we come to grips with that? How do we awaken, awaken wisdom within it? So one aspect of trusting our own practice is, is remembering that we're here to learn. And it's helpful to know that each of our journeys are unique, and we often get into big trouble when we compare our practice to other people's practice. As meditation becomes more mainstream in our culture, I, I find it amusing to find cartoons about meditation. And uh, just before I left home, I found a cartoon in The New Yorker about meditation. And there is a, a sketch of some yogis in the meditation hall. It was a great sketch, very realistic. And this one yogi is sitting there, and his cell phone rings. <laughs> and the, the caption underneath him answering the phone is, I'm crazed with this noble path. I have to get back to you. (laughs) And I I found it an interesting one because in some ways, you know, being crazed with this noble path and having, and actually having to disconnect and stay in silence was a great sign that culturally we're starting to commit. You know, it was, it was wonderful. And so, the big question is, can we remember that commitment? You know, that this is so much of the journey is the spirit of beginning again, the spirit of beginning again. We get lost, and then hopefully we inspire ourselves somehow to begin again. The basic um, bottom line of what supports us to learn from practice, from life, is that when we remember uh, that it doesn't so much matter what our experience is, but how we're relating to it. And it, it's just, it's, that's what holds us. And sometimes, yeah, it would be nice if somebody would come and physically hold us, but there's, there's some invisible ways that we're held. And it, it's really with that understanding. And that's the understanding that can help us uh, keep deepening the awakening, uh, is really knowing this. And of course we forget. 
And in some ways, if we're really growing in the practice, uh, we're going to um, come up against layers where it gets difficult. And that's good, because otherwise we wouldn't be growing. And often when a difficult layer emerges, uh, we will have that resistance. You know, it's like we say, no, I don't really want to learn from that. But in some ways, karmically, that's the very thing that will allow us to really find this inner freedom and give birth to wisdom. It's our next step along the way. If we're really learning skill, that can be acceptable to us. If we think we should have all the skill we need and we're not here to learn anymore, of course when the next layer emerges, we're going we're gonna to resist. Because we don't have that humility to admit that we have more to learn. So this process takes a certain degree of humility. So when things are going well for us, um, it's often easier for us to trust our practice. And when things are more difficult, it's not as easy to trust our practice. So if we look at just a range of what could happen in an hour of sitting, we might have sinking mind, and then we might shift to restlessness. And uh, the description of restlessness is really interesting in the text, because it's restlessness and wary. So when we have a lot of energy, and we aren't able to concentrate it, (laughs) often what can happen is that the physical sensations in the body can be quite unpleasant, but we use up the energy by wearing. (laughs) And often that's where we lose a lot of trust in our practice, because we don't have that ease or calm to help us remember to step back and just say, oh, it's just restlessness. And if you, if you notice that you're wearing, you know, you're getting caught in wearing, try to take a look and, and just try saying something like, oh, maybe this is restlessness. And we, this is, the shift in attitude is, instead of it being, oh no, not restlessness again, it's like, can I learn some skill to deal with this? And the skill of, is, of course, some mindfulness, compassion, interest, you know, not identifying. You know, we hear all those words, um, but it requires practice. It requires doing it over and over and over till we get the skill. And what I mean by a new layer emerging is that sometimes, say, something like hopelessness comes up and we have no skill with it yet. Well, of course it will seem overwhelming and of course we'll resist it until we get the skill to be okay with that experience as well. So what I'm saying is that with skill, we start to relate to each experience equally. So say there's calm, then sinking mind, then some wary, and then some loving kindness. <laughs> you know, and it goes on. You can say, you know, you c- you could all give us a great description of your last hour walking or sitting. There'd be joy. There'd be sadness. There'd be, you know, we just it's like um, this transforming process of change. And if you look closely, where we suffer, it's where we resist and where we don't trust that we have enough skill to open to that experience. 
So another way to describe skill is that we infuse the experience with clarity. You know, it's like when you infuse a tea bag <laughs> into hot water, it's the same thing. It's like you bring this clarity to the experience, uh, and it's not a problem anymore. And sometimes we forget to do this with pleasurable experiences as well as unpleasant ones. And so that's when we also suffer because we go along and we enjoy it and enjoy it, but there's this slight little minor detail which is we're identified with it so that when it passes, we suffer. So that leads into... um, the deeper meaning of that infusion of clarity into experience is really understanding change. And the Buddha described um, three characteristics of existence, or three truths, and they're the truths of existence. Uh, And the first is is anicca, or change. And this is so profound. It's like, (laughs) it's so amazing. Um, You know, it's... um, staggering, really, how much we are to here to learn about change. Changes in the body, changes in the mind, changes in the heart. I mean, it's just for me, just in the last two months, my eyesight has just, um, you know, become so that <laughs> I can't quite adjust it. If you see, I'll bring my glasses in. You know, and, but I got the wrong glasses because if I read them this way, I can't see you. You know, and it, it's like, I kind of knew this was happening, but did I get the right glasses or did I really get it together yet? No. <laughs> I don't want to quite admit that it's this, you know, it's, it's, it's not going back to, you know, <laughs> you know, my, you know, 48-year-old vision, it's 50-year-old vision and it's, shot. (laughs) But I watch myself resisting getting the glasses that I need because that clearly shows that I'm over that edge where I can pull it off anymore. And that's just such a, it's a minor example, but I've noticed myself not quite showing up for this experience. So the first characteristic of existence is impermanence. And it's really the touchstone for understanding the other two. So it's because everything that takes birth dies. It's because everything, every experience changes that dukkha is a truth. And dukkha is very difficult to translate. And it's really the unreliability of experience. And, you know, it, it's unreliable because it's changing. And, and you can talk all around dukkha. It's like, because it's unreliable, how, how is it? What do we share deeply with all other beings, not just human beings, but all beings? We share this intense vulnerability that no matter how much we want to control things, you know, we never really know what's going to happen. And you'll see, when you get caught up in a lot of planning, you know, you see how much we get caught up in planning because we want to control. 
and we want to control and we want to control. We want that security of knowing what's going to happen. And it's okay. It's not to judge that. It's, it's to start to allow and awaken that so that we don't get so caught in it. We can notice the planning, okay, and come back to, with present time awareness just to that utter vulnerability of being with experience in the moment. So a lot of our um, resistance to how things are, to our momentary experience, is because we don't quite want to get in touch with that existential predicament of just not knowing what's going to happen next. So much of what we learn in the basics of meditation, it's like the breath can teach us everything about this. You know, there's that, you can have that sense of, oh, it's just another breath. You know, it's, it's air element. It's so light and subtle. One can barely be with it, really. But in other levels, when we're more awake and we notice the beginning, middle, end, you know, that's life. Can we be with it? And we never know what the next breath is going to be. Or if it will be. The third truth of existence, you know, and remember, you keep in mind that everything that takes birth is changing and, and vanishes, you know, and that because of that there's this intense vulnerability or unreliability. The third characteristic is in some ways very different, and to me it really takes the sting out of existence. And so it's described as anatta. Uh, atta is essence substantialness. Sometimes it's, it's translated as self. But if you, if you include all these translations, like essence or substantiality, anatta would be without essence, without substantiality. So it's, it's without inherent solidity or lasting permanence. You know, so that the Buddha taught that no matter how uh, closely you look at any phenomena that appears, uh, you can't find a solid, permanent, separate essence or self in it. You know, and sometimes that's described as emptiness. Uh, and I think that there can be, you know when you see the shadows of the turkey vultures and you look up and you, you sense that lightness of, of just the soaring energy of a bird like that to the, the vast blue sky. And you can sense that kind of lightness and insubstantiality. You can feel there's a kind of relief in it. There's a, a dis, 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 disentanglement uh, from life which feels wonderful. So this also, this insubstantiality, when we can face it and not think that there's something um, horrible about this insubstantiality, which we, we, it's, a, it's a cerebral reaction, really, not, not a real true heart reaction to it. When it's genuine, that understanding feels wonderful. And it, it does feel kind of like um, a soaring bird that isn't entangled by experience.
So an aspect of awakening wisdom and trusting our, the process of that for us is learning no matter what we're experiencing, sitting, walking, eating, is it's that showing up. It's the doing the best we can and then letting go of control. You know, we do the best we can and then let go of control. And if we don't have those both in balance, we tend to struggle. If we try too hard without the letting go of control, you can see that the motivation gets really off and we're trying to control experience and we suffer. And if we tend to to let go of control without really doing our best to connect, you know, we're not there. And so much can be said about this because, again, we're, we're not always in perfect balance. And we judge ourselves so much unless we feel like it's perfect. And that's, we're so hard on ourselves. So hopefully over time we start to learn that however it's happening for us is just the way it's meant to be. It's like we don't have to be perfect at this. In fact, I find the practice of a retreat is wonderful because you can't possibly make it perfect. You know, you can make a lot of things. You can control a lot of things in life. But a day of life in the meditation, it's not possible. And that's great for us. Right after um, my niece gave birth, it was an interesting winter. I spent a lot of time with uh, two people in the hospital. Right after my niece gave birth, um, a dear friend with AIDS on another island had a very serious bout with um, pneumonia. And he was helicoptered over to my island. And it's a kind of a complicated story, but it turned out that um, I ended up with him this very critical day. And he almost died several times with me that day. Uh, in fact, it was one of the most intense days of my life. And in many ways, this friend of mine um, is quite, I think he's made peace with dying. But we're not always at peace with a lot of suffering on the way. And I think we had a very deep, impressive day together because very early on, you know, when it was such a roller coaster of so many difficult um, symptoms, but also the nurses and doctors not responding initially. Um, you know, I just said, remember, you know, your job is just to show up for this. And over and over again, you know, it went in, you know, and even though it was that he kept getting lost and it was very difficult, he'd go, oh yeah, my job is just to show up for this. And it's the same in birthing, living, dying, you know, when we really um, accept this adventure of life, it's really all we can do. Our job is just to show up for this, do the best we can, let go of control. One other aspect of this, um, which was quite a learning for me, when I was with my niece, I got to learn all the ways of reading vital signs, and um, it was quite helpful for me when I was with this friend the first day in the hospital. Uh, And one time I was just watching everything going way beyond, 
you know, the, the point of what they say is no return. Uh, and one time I said, do you want to know the numbers? And he said, don't tell me the numbers. And during the day, it was quite interesting because sometimes telling him the numbers was really helpful. And other times it wasn't helpful. And I had to really be in touch with, like, remembering to ask him and uh, tune in. Uh, so there was no fixed recipe for that. It was, it was that delicate. Because sometimes when you hear some kind of statistic or number about yourself, it can really, you know, you can lose your morale, yeah? <laughs> you know, it's, it can be, you know, we all know this. We've been in situations, at least with a friend or a family person or yourself, where you hear some kind of number and it's like you can, you know, be ready to drive them to the grave. But it's not the case, you know? And, and there, there is that uh, making space for healing that happens when we don't buy into that. But other times, as we know, you know, these numbers can inspire us to take care of ourselves in ways, you know, that we haven't. And it was that, it was so interesting because it was so um, momentary when it was helpful, when it wasn't. And that shows such a deep trust in the process. Not having to have a fixed rule about what is right or what is wrong for us, but really listening. That's how we build trust in ourselves, in our practice, by listening to ourselves and not having to have only one way of responding to a situation. So when we say, you know, our job is to show up for this, it doesn't mean that life is always a piece of cake. You know, and I, I, so much of my practice was a learning about this. It's like I kept thinking, well, if I show up for this, there shouldn't be any more pain in life. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a pretty good idea to bargain with it that way. Okay, I'll show up if it's pleasant. <laughs> and we do it. We have to, we laugh because we do that. It seems like that's how it should be. It should be easier. And that's why it takes this um, remembering to stay in touch with it. We're here to learn. We're here to learn. Uh, And if we look very closely at this, um, life is changing. You know, we've been watching physical sensations changing, mental states changing, emotions changing, sounds changing. Within that change, we have to learn to trust why we're here. And the reason it's difficult is because within that change, it's pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain. And the depth of the practice is that we cut through the pleasure and pain syndrome. So that the joy or the happiness or the peace isn't coming from just pleasure, but it's coming from the love of the truth. And this is, this is the beauty of the practice, is that we cut through experience itself. The freedom is that our awareness is no longer tied to the pleasure-pain syndrome. The awareness is no longer tied 
to experience itself. I think I might need my glasses for this. This looks <laughs> pretty. Oh well. The problem is when I put these on, I can't read after, and I can't take them off anymore. Okay, here we go. I did it. The Cookie Thief by Valerie Cox. A woman was waiting in an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her had blackened his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. <laughs> he ordered her half. He offered her, he offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he is also rude. Why, he didn't even show me any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. <laughs> she boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> if, if mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his and he tried to share. <laughs> Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. <laughs> How much do we do this? I mean, it's incredible, you know. How, I mean, just all the projections we do onto people, and then we realize, you know, we f get fooled so much. And what do we get fooled by? We get fooled by our reactions to change. We get fooled by our reaction to pushing away pain and holding on to pleasure. I knew this Okay. <laughs> So I think that life requires so much lightness and humor. You know, we make mistakes a lot, and then can we forgive ourselves and forgive others? I mean, I can do, I do so many of those things in traffic. You know, it's like you can, you can get so upset at somebody and then realize, you know, they were doing something nice for you. <laughs> So understanding that the purpose of understanding change is that we get a detachment from the notion that passing things are definitive. And this is what's so important about the kind of slowing down in practice on retreat and starting to really notice our physical sensation steps, mental states changing. We start to see um, that each experience is provisional. No, it's not permanent. 
so that everything ultimately that's happening and going by is okay. It's provisional reality. So we can learn to relate to experience from a place of actually perfect freedom when we understand change. Our awareness doesn't have to be tied to experience. And this is what the freedom is in practice. And what you're doing is learning skill with this. So you learn skill with that with the breath. You learn skill with it with physical sensation, sound. Sometimes you might seem, think that it's kind of simplistic, oh, just another breath. But when you truly understand that that isn't you, that these sensations are just provisional, they come and go by themselves. Once you learn that, you can relate that to any experience like despair or sadness or joy. So the question we can ask ourselves over and over is, where am I right now? Am I, you know, am I showing up for the experience? Or am I not around? When we're plugged into the present moment, it's like there's a current that runs through us. It's very energizing. And even when an experience is unpleasant or painful, there can be a joy at meeting it because it is the truth. This is how we learn to trust our practice. We're not making an interpretation about ourselves because we're having a painful experience, or we're not making an interpretation about life because we're having an unpleasant experience. We're able to step back and accept but also not take it personally. We let it come and go by itself. Thomas Merton calls this the admission of presence. It's consenting to life. It's consenting to the truth. He said that we know there is no such thing as any of us always meeting the truth head on. We just don't do it. But we do sometimes, and that's good. We face up to the truth, and then we fall back again into these complicated evasions. We hide. We say to ourselves, wait a little. Don't confront me just yet. Let me get myself together and figure out what I've got to do about this. So we see how we get lost in these complicated evasions. Uh, and it's, it's these complicated evasions are when we're not trusting the practice. Uh, and it's very important to understand that we're usually doing this when we don't have the skill or the mindfulness to meet the truth head on. Anytime you have an experience and you go, oh, not this again, or oh, no, it's a pretty good clue that resistance is happening. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to go, oh, great, rage is happening, you know. (laughs) I don't think that we have to go that far, but the consent or the admission of presence is really consenting that this has appeared. It's the truth of your experience in that moment. 
And then our job is just to show up for it, but not to take it personally and to relate to it as provisional. There are so many experiences to try to describe this with, but the, the one I wanted to describe tonight a little bit is with doubt, because the opposite of trusting the process is doubt. And doubt is the opposite of confidence, it's the opposite of faith. Um, and some of the thoughts that can happen to us, especially I think at the beginning of a retreat, but I can't do this like the niece that couldn't go any further with the birth. You know, we, we hit this place, I can't do it, I'll never get it, I'm no good, I'm a failure. I, one of my favorites used to be, I've ruined my retreat. <laughs> Have you said that yet? <laughs> I blew it, I ruined my retreat, forget it, you know. Uh, I might as well wait till the next retreat. You know? It's amazing what we can do. And then there's the blaming others or doubting the teaching, you know, oh, you know, I like that other practice I did, or, you know, doubting the teachers, the Buddha. It's, it's um, interesting. Uh, and it, the reason I want to mention doubt tonight or how to work with it a bit is because if we get caught in it, we can't do the practice. And this, this kind of paralysis sets in because there's less and less showing up for our lives there's less trust in our own practice and process. And it's a kind of downward, vicious cycle. That's a kind of understatement. And often we have extreme aversion to this process. Uh, So I'd like to just encourage you to notice when you're having a doubting thought, it's almost like you need to have these red lights go off. You know, like a fire engine, a fire station or something. It's like, really, you have to say, watch out. You know, because we can clobber ourselves. Uh, And so much of the difficulty in practice is using the practice against ourselves. Judging, comparing. Um, So sometimes we can do something simple, like you can have the thought, um, my favorite is I'm not working hard enough. You know, and I'm not working hard enough is insidious. You know, and we often have an insidious kind of doubt that you can make sense out of it. It's like, you know, it's a kind of rationalization that um, you can really buy into and then beat yourself up. So whenever my practice was getting a little boring or I would judge it as not good enough or not deep enough, I would think it was my fault that I wasn't working hard enough. That's my kind of doubt. I'd get a whip and I'd start whipping myself. Work harder, work harder, work harder you're no good, you're no good. And then, of course, <laughs> you can see how that can't help you really show up. You know, right? You're getting, you're getting more and more down and down and out. Um, there's less medicine. The mindfulness is medicine. Uh, and I would end up in a bloody pool. And that would be the only moment when compassion would arise. I would actually have to imagine myself in this kind of bloody pool, and I'd, I'd finally connect with what I was doing to myself, and I'd finally want to stop. And literally, it would be like I would put the whip down. I don't want to do this to myself anymore. Now, hopefully you might not be that extreme, but usually there's this, you know, process and practice where we have to see this, or we won't have compassion for ourselves. And it's painful, 
But I am so grateful. I remember the moment when that happened for me. It's like I finally let myself see what I was doing to myself with my own self-judgment. If you don't let yourself see it, you won't stop. You know, so this is part of awakening wisdom, is to let yourself see it. Breaking the cycle of self-judgment is breaking the cycle of not trusting ourselves. There's a kind of helplessness in the face of suffering that can happen. And if, if we do keep going with the self-judgment, there's a kind of despair. And I find that for most of us humans, if we hit that and we bottom out, it will change. You know, so you don't have to even worry about this. It's like I can, I can describe this experience, but I have great faith in that process that if we don't catch ourselves in time and we do start going down with this doubting cycle, um, it's really being able to finally have a little white flag go up. And it's like we say, Uncle, there was a white flag, and we just start again, and it's okay. I find that if people get in too much of a black hole with doubt, and one can't find a way to work with it, that it is helpful to go for a walk, or to have a cup of tea, you know, or do something where um, you lighten up. You know, you might go feed a squirrel. <laughs> you know, something, something where you kind of step out enough of yourself that you break, you break the pattern. It's the most important place in practice, actually. If you have a lot of um, awareness, there can be a doubting thought that appears in the mind, and we don't buy it at all. And that's the kind of skill you can learn. You know, a little thought can come by, I'm not doing good at this, or that was a bad sitting. Um, you know, that way we, we judge <laughs> the last five minutes, or whatever it is. It's like, when, when there's skill, we don't buy into it at all. And I think you'll start to see that as you um, can see these thoughts at least as impermanent, you start getting enough space to trust your practice more and more. So the idea of practice is that we're starting to include and connect with all experience, but we see it as provisional, as impermanent, as unreliable. And this brings a balance of deeply connecting with life, but also being disentangled, free from experience. Suffering in life is when we're not showing up, when we're resisting what's happening. Uh, And I would like to assure you that whatever you're resisting in the practice in the next day or two might seem like an obstacle now, but it's going to be what um, helps you give birth to more wisdom and more skill. 
And when we start to really deeply understand that, we have more and more trust in this process, more and more trust in learning skill. And when we come up against new layers, uh, not that I'm not saying that we go, oh boy, you know, I'm going to get to learn new skill here, <laughs> as much as we understand that we're here to learn and we're willing. There's a willingness to keep going uh, because we love the truth so much. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.